What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. I'm James, and today we're going to be doing two rated R comic book movies, Watchmen and V for Vendetta. Especially graphic novels. Yeah, graphic novels. Sorry about saying comic book. These yeah. are graphic novels. Although don't, Watchmen, don't get it wrong. Watchmen was a comic book uh, series of 12 comic books that they turn into a graphic novel when you buy the whole thing. Anyways. Oh, wow. So technically, I they were comic books. So I was right. You're half right. We're both half right. And this is going nice to be a great, right. it's a great start to the episode so far. <laughs> um, I, but I think gra- graphic novels are, are a rich example of incredible storytelling in, ter- in the comic book world. Um, where more adult themes and storytelling elements can be put into these characters and these worlds. And um, obviously, superheroes have overtaken popular culture and movies in the last decade and a half. But before Marvel really took off, um, the only superhero movies, as we know, were the major ones, Spider-Man, Batman, um, Superman, Blade. and, and Blade. Um, but, um, but Blade was still small, very, relatively small. Yeah. yeah. And... But besides those big ones, like there was Blade, and there, and so other comic book movies were getting made, but they were adult themed. And the reason for that is because I don't think I don't think studios trusted the lesser known heroes like the Avengers and stuff for their own movies, and so they went to these stories because these movies can still kind of resemble movies from the past. Yeah, we've and, seen vampires. Yeah, all sorts of genres. Like this is a, a political movie, so we've seen p- plenty of political movies like this. So. Uh, I think that they were they felt these were safer choices for comic book movies. Yeah, I get that for sure. And Watchmen, um, I, I it was my first graphic novel I ever read. I bought the graphic novel in preparation to see the movie because obviously 300 was awesome and we were teenagers when that came out, so we became like Zack Snyder, Snyder fans overnight. And then when we got word and wind that they were making this Watchmen movie and we used to, this was before like instant social media and knowing everything about whatever was happening all day. Uh, so we, we found these nuggets and got like still photos and like it was cool. It seemed so interesting. Yeah, it seemed really awesome and dope because these are superheroes and Watchmen specifically, but you know, they don't have superpowers. They're they're human for the most part. Obviously, Dr. Manhattan's the only super being in the story, but I, th- I was just fascinated with the idea and I read the graphic novel by Alan Moore and uh, illustrated by Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore also wrote V for Vendetta and that was actually illustrated by David Lloyd. And the reason why I think it's important to let you know who illustrated these graphic novels is because it's such an important part to the storytelling, but also because Alan Moore hated all adaptations of his stories, uh, like From Hell and then League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He hated them so much that he sold all the rights to his work and sold the credit to his work. He didn't want his name attached to any of these films if they ever got adapted. And so, like, he didn't want credit for Watchmen. That's why his name is nowhere on the film credits or anything like that. He didn't want credit for V for Vendetta. He said he'll probably never watch these movies ever. At one point, you can understand it, but then also you sell it off. You sell the rights off, and you're giving it to a movie studio. Like, you can't expect them to be 100% complete loyalists in terms of the material. They're trying to make money. So. I understand he's upset about how the adaptations turn up, but I mean, you made a good amount of money, I'm sure, and, and you didn't have to sell them, so it is what it is. Still, you're responsible for the canon of these stories and yeah. you know the the pure versions of them, if you want to say. But I love both these movies. Watchmen blew my mind because I never really seen anything like it. Because uh, Zack Snyder, he's a very stylistic, divisive filmmaker. Because a lot of people either hate or love him. You either hate the guy's style or love it. Like I love 300. I love Man of Steel. Justice League, obviously, that's a uh, complicated project because he had to drop out before it was done. Um, but you know, I think he's a he's a visionary filmmaker. He has very uh, specific style, 
And then V for Vendetta was done by James McTeague, who was kind of like the protege to the Wachowskis on the on the Matrix he franchise. He was their second unit director. So, so that was his first, I think it was his first director yeah. uh, film. And he did a fantastic job with V for Vendetta. And obviously the Wachowskis produced and wrote that script. Yeah, and both of these films and both these graphic novels, they take superheroes into places that we had never seen them really before, especially on film, where you're seeing extreme violence and gore and challenging situations and and uh, adult topics and themes. And it's it was so refreshing to see these things in superhero movie because now they're kind of... I mean, yeah, Marvel movies are super entertaining. They're great, but it's kind of fluff, you know? It's, it's nothing too adulty in terms of themes and ideas and um it's it's often it's good versus evil and it, yeah there's great drama but um like v for vendetta the political themes in that movie are just really inc- incredibly profound mm-hmm. and and strong and then watchmen has really intense themes about the idea of humanity and and uh, what what would you sacrifice to protect the world you know what i mean ultimately is i think the main theme and uh, these movies hit real hard and it's it fe- like I said earlier. It feels like, in a way, they're the stories are non superhero, but they have superhero characters. Yeah, and then obviously, Doctor Manhattan though again for Watchmen, he's the only super being, which is very cool. And then V for V for Vendetta, he's super being in a way. I mean, he gets like you know super intellect yeah. and strength and and uh, combat skills and everything. So obviously, he's somewhat of a superhuman in a way. And but then, he's an antihero. Yeah, yeah. Like we said, like you said, Zack Snyder is a great director. He's extremely talented and. Um, he's he, visually he's an incredible director um, not with his first movie Dawn of the Dead it was a very good movie but it wasn't his signature style yet yeah um, high contrasty beautiful cinematography slow-mo slow-mo <laughs> um, lots of uh, blues and oranges contrasting with one another in terms of the color palettes and and, and but this was a, a the second example after 300 where you could see this this genius visual storyteller at work and I just remember the trailer first dropping, and it, it seemed so intriguing and, and so cool because we were used to, uh, before this, it was um, Spider-Man's 1, 2, and 3, or 1 and 2, and then uh, Fantastic Four. And so to see the trailer for this the first time, a rated R, darkly lit, very um, adult-themed superhero movie with lots of blood and gore. I was just like taking my money, Warner Brothers. Yeah, and not to mention, I wasn't a huge fan of that Superman reboot they did with uh, Brandon Ruth. Yeah. Routh, Routh, Ruth. 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 Routhie. I mean, Routh. yeah, it was good, but like I wasn't blown away by it or anything. And then, you know, we saw this trailer, and we were 18 when it came out, in two, and then it came out in 2009. And it, it, again, it blew us away. And again, uh, directed by Zack Snyder, uh, set in 1985, where former superheroes exist, the murder of a colleague sends active vigilante Rorschach into a sp- brawling investigation and covering something that could completely change the course of history as we know it. And it's it's like a really interesting um, concept of like this alternate reality. And I love the way that Zack Snyder opens this up in this opening uh, montage of the film. It's one of his best part pieces of directing in his, in his entire career and opening credits with, with music. And we see like so many different cultural references from history that are just, you know, slightly altered, like those silhouetted kisses of the nurses on the the uh, D-Day celebration in Times Square, I think it was, or VJ Day. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, Richard Nixon is reelected for a third term because America won the Vietnam War. Yeah. And there's also like an- another little Easter egg where there are 51 st- stars on all the flags of, of the American flags in this film because Vietnam in this world, in this reality, became another state of America. Um, the-, the comedian shakes hands with Richard Nixon in the film, one of the, one of the uh, superheroes in the movie. 
um, in the the protesting with the flower on the barrel of the gun, so stuff like that. And with this, I really love this film because of its uh, how it affects history. Like yeah. like Tarantino, we talked about with Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, where he tweaks with history to tell his story. Um, and this story, it changed a lot of American history in different ways. And like in terms of Nixon, the reason why he was elected again was because the comedian uh, covered up information about Watergate, so that, that information never got out to the public. And like I, I and. They won the Vietnam War because Dr. Manhattan helped the U.S. And so, and also, like, Batman is fictionalized. We talked about yeah. it in another episode where um, Bruce Wayne's parents are saved by uh, costume vigilantes. And so, Batman essentially never is formed because of Bruce Wayne had but to a, yeah, grow up with parents. There's a fictional Batman yeah. poster. Like, so he, the, the comic book hero exists. Yeah, which yeah. Is cool. Exactly. And so, I really I loved um, how. Because no one ever thought to question, like, how, would things be different if there ever were superheroes or, or heroes? And I think that it was so interesting to see a story tell it be like uh, American history changed completely because of it. And, and I think the obviously the biggest impact it had was that um, at this point in time during the story, the Soviet Union is still a great power. Yeah, and basically... This episode of Raiders of Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped. Get their new lawnmower 3.0 today. It is waterproof. It has a light. Uh, it's it's touch sensitive to your skin. You won't feel a thing. And two million men right now are trusting Manscaped products to groom. So make sure you're one of them. Manscaped has sent us everything: their colognes, their deodorizers, their t-shirts, their briefs. It's all so comfortable. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for twenty percent off and free shipping. Your body will thank you. It's lockdown. We're still going through COVID, so don't don't ignore your body. You gotta keep keep up, and your, your significant others will thank you very much. So again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout from Manscaped. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Com for 20% off and free shipping. And the production of this film was in delay for decades. Uh, a script had been written like 20, 30 years before this film. Yeah, when was it written? In the 80s? The, it, the, the least, comic, it was the graphic novel for at least 20 years. What about the novel? I think the graphic novel was in the 80s. Like yeah. the early 80s? And uh, Terry Gilliam was actually pretty close to, to making a, a movie about it, and raising, but he just couldn't raise the funds for it. That would have been cool. Um, and then it fell you know, on Zack Snyder's shoulders, and he 
found a way to do it on the budget that he had. And again, his attention to detail in this movie. Is I think because he because three hundred was such, such a success, Warner Brothers gave him the green light. Yeah, for it. but it wasn't a huge box office success, which is obviously why I don't think the show worked out either. When they 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 made the Watchmen TV show, and I don't, I think it only lasted one season. I think they already canceled it. No, it was set to be one season. Oh, okay, it's never. a one-off. All right, never mind. And I'm, it was uh, it won a lot of awards. I have no idea what the hell so I'm talking you, about. You're then. an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but again, it flopped because th- this is a th- why did it flop? It's a very bold superhero movie. Again, it features a bunch of heroes we've never heard of um, outside of the comic book lore world. No one ever heard of anyone. I've never heard of Doctor Manhattan or the comedian or anything like that or the a- Night Owl. Also, there's only one super in the movie in the whole story. Um, and really, it's just 12 comics, like I said, or the graphic novel. And I think that that limited the audience, and plus it's rated R. And yeah. I, th- I don't yeah. think a lot of kids were interested in seeing Watchmen. Yeah, and so obviously rated R movies can be successful, like with Logan, with Deadpool. But Logan, already in eight movies. Yeah. <laughs> and Deadpool, um, a, a f- rabid fan base. And Ryan Reynolds. And so with this, like you said, the characters are more obscure, but also Guardian Galaxy ca- characters are obscure. But Guardians had the Marvel stamp. There were ten Marvel movies before Guardians came out, so it's a lot more. Fun. It had it had the brand of Marvel, so people it was already going to make money just because it was a Marvel movie, and also like you just said, Guardians is a lot of fun, and so Warner Brothers. I'm not sure they I'm not sure they completely understood what audiences wanted in superhero movies back then because Dark Knight was such a success, but it's it wasn't a success just because it was dark it's, it was a success because it was great mm-hmm. all it's just a great film all time of the century so far you know what i mean and they took the obviously you get to respect them for taking the chance of making this movie they put up almost 200 million dollars on a rated r film and that's a big um that's a big commitment to that but audiences at this point in time they didn't want a kind of superhero movie like this this movie it turns superhero movies on its heads, and it dissects superhero movies. But they weren't. We weren't ready for this mm-hmm. because there weren't that many superhero movies. It wasn't so prevalent. There in were our a life. few franchises over a decade, and so it wasn't like now where we're inundated with superhero movies. So now I think audiences like Logan and with Deadpool, they're they're interested in seeing films that kind of change the way you tell the story of a superhero movie yeah and so if this movie had come out around now i think it would found a lot more success but i think audiences they weren't ready for this kind of story yet yeah i agree with you because i mean it's it's great that you say that audiences weren't ready for it or didn't know what they wanted at the time it's kind of like when this comic book came out and the graphic novel came out i don't think even comic book fans knew what they wanted from this story because like the movie basically is in ways a parody of superhero films the comic book itself is a parody on comic books and, and the different ages and golden and eras of, of comic books. And that's one of Alan Moore's intent when he wrote this story. And that was also Snyder's intent when he directed it because he added a lot of extreme gore and a lot of extreme violence to the film that's not in the comic books because he he is de- he's deconstructing superhero movies because they don't show repercussions of all these superheroes attacking um, villains or... Uh, causing mayhem or harm on others, even though they're doing it for the, for the right reasons, which is good. But because they're PG-13, they never show what happens to the guys they're fighting. And so Snyder really wanted to show, oh, if this trained superhero or comic book character is going fight to gu- fight a criminal, he's going to break his arm in half and blood's going to spray everywhere. He wanted to show that for that reason. Yeah, that's pretty clever because he kind of wants to do what Alan Moore did, and yeah. said, except with movie form. Mm. Another example of him 
basically poking fun at modern com- modern superhero movies at the time are the suits and like especially the nipples on Ozymandias. He did that on purpose to poke fun at that George Clooney Batman movie where why do they have nipples on their chests if in their suits? So mm-hmm. that's another example of like little things like that that Zack Snyder added into the film to do on purpose. People didn't understand it. So for example like that, they're like, they took that seriously. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So they didn't understand the tone and I think snacks. I think <laughs> snack Snyder. Snack Snyder. He's a snack. Snack Snyder. Uh, Snyder did such a great job adapting this novel because it is, in a lot of ways, unfilmable. Like, how do you film the climax of this movie mm-hmm. uh, of this of this novel? Because if you haven't read the novel, uh, what happens? A, a nuke doesn't go off at the end. It's it's a giant squid uh, is uh, transported into the city and it kills millions of people in the city. Like a gigantic dozen tentacle squid. And so that's not something that would really translate on film in a mainstream film for million for millions of people seeing this movie who haven't even read the novel. So I, I think that they got a lot of fan hate for not including that part, but you can't put that in the movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Like, what the fuck is that? So I think that he he was right in deciding to make it a, a nuclear attack. Um, it's much much more filmable, and then also. You you got to appreciate his loyalty to the to the novel because so many of the frames, so much of the cinematography of Watchmen, is to the T uh, exactly like many of the drawings in the graphic novel. Like he, he he even was on set with the novel, framing his shots to look exactly like images in the novel. And I think that you, it was an amazing thing for Snyder to do. Yeah, he even had uh, the illustrator Dave Gibbons do some of the marketing material and posters, the original posters for the for the movie, just to kind of keep that aesthetic of the old style. And again, these if you're unfamiliar with the story, the first time you see it, you're, you're going into, oh, it's a superhero movie. Like you said, it's ahead of time of its time, and people didn't understand what it was. And you t- you go to the movie, and you're like, oh, they don't have powers. Yeah. They're just people. Yeah, Ozymandias is different. Ozymandias, you could say, is the only person, human, that has superhuman abilities because he's a genius intellect. I think he's the smartest person on the planet, yeah, on the as planet, well as yeah. absurd uh, superhuman speed and strength, like he can catch a bullet and stuff like that. Yeah. And he's basically unstoppable in, a, in hand-to-hand combat. But aside from that, everyone else is a human, and they're more of just like vigilantes, and they used to be this this basically squad of vigilante crime fighters, but they've been outlawed by yeah. the government. Yeah, the heroes are villainized, and and so they haven't been heroes in a long time. So a lot of these characters, they're just they're just people, and they're very flawed people. And like like Night Owl, Patrick Wilson's character has put on a lot of weight, and he he can't get it up in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I mean these are like adult things that you wouldn't see in in a in a Marvel movie. You wouldn't see a man. With a problem like that, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But it's, like Bruce Wayne's not gonna yeah. have a problem getting it up. Yeah, exactly. Tony Stark isn't gonna have that problem. You know what I mean. But he'll make a joke about it, like, oh, performance issues with the stick. You yeah. know what I mean. But th- it's not gonna be an actual flaw to a person in those movies. And so those are the kinds of things that are really refreshing to see in this movie because they're real life problems that a lot of people have in these characters. That so I think they're extremely relatable, especially because they are former heroes. So now they're just getting by as normal people yeah and this film and yes they're heroes they're human but the like you said earlier the violence is insane and, and Zack snyder by deconstructing superhero movies he wants he's brutal to you as an audience member and showing you intense gore i mean like like for example you brought up when the guy's arm gets broken and you see the bone coming out and the blood squirt and then when dr manhattan's uh attacking vietnam he's just disintegrating people and he mm-hmm. does it a few times world of, world of, war of the world style it, it's yeah. insane and it's very graphic you see blood splurring out everywhere you see like a lot of skeletal structures too with uh, dr manhattan when he disappears and, mm-hmm. and appears in other places and uh 
it's really intense in like you said i don't think a lot of people were ready for it but i think it's full of really great themes and super interesting characters obviously one of the most complicated and interesting characters is rorschach who he he reminds me in some ways of Batman because he is a vigilante and he's the only one who hasn't um, hung up his his mask. You know he's still doing it, um, and he's brutal and he's violent and he is a, a like a, an an investigator. But he unlike Batman, he he's willing to kill, like he'll kill people no problem. So he obviously he doesn't have a moral code, um, but he tries to carry out justice in in his own way, um, and I think he's just a a, a very um, flawed individual um but also he in a lot of ways he's the voice of this movie because he narrates many much of this film yeah i wouldn't say he doesn't have a, a moral code per se because at the end of the film because of his beliefs he has dr manhattan kill him yeah so basically because he there's no way because of his morals he can't not let everyone know what just happened yeah because obviously we all know spoilers alert ozymandias to save the world and to stop a nuclear war between the Soviet Union and America with missiles, he creates that explosion in New York City so that both uh, Soviet Union and America uh, have a common enemy, and he frames Doctor Manhattan for that. And so once they all, once Rorschach finds that out with Night Owl, he said he he basically wants Doctor Manhattan to kill him because there's no way he can keep quiet about this. Yeah, he says um, no compromise, mm-hmm. even in the face of Armageddon. So he's not completely without a moral code, you could say, morally corrupt. I wouldn't obviously. call it a moral code. I, a code. I would say a personality code, maybe or like a, a a way he carries Princi- himself. Principles, principles, yeah. principles. Yeah, because Anton Chigurh's principles. Because he's not a good guy. No. Rorschach is a very yeah. flawed person, especially in the comic books, which we you know. I think he's obsessed with carrying out justice mm-hmm. so that's what guides his his compass you know what i mean and then uh night owl played by patrick wilson's another really interesting character he's kind of similar to i guess you could say batman in terms of like um very intelligent guy uh he has all these gadgets not a billionaire ships. not a billionaire though but he does have a lot of gadgets and in, in, yeah. in, in stuff and he inherited the role from the older night owl like this is a generational uh hero like passing of the torch kind of thing and uh, he has an, a relationship also with um, the Silk Spectre, who's played by who's Laurie Jupiter in real life, and they have like a love triangle between the two of them and Doctor Manhattan, and she's Doctor Manhattan's assistant and lover, but also does have a fling with uh, Patrick Wilson's character Night Owl, and I think that Doctor Manhattan is my personally like, the most interesting character in part of the entire story and film. Yeah, Manhattan's great because he he's. He starts out as a as a normal man, just a scientist, and he's turned into Doctor Manhattan because of uh being locked in that, in that um, what do you call radioactive it? particle test? Yeah, the particle test. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but his character goes through so much immense transformation, not just because he transformed into Doctor Manhattan, but but Doctor Manhattan goes through his own transformation too because <clears throat> he's become this um, godlike being, and and he's surrounded by mortals and humans and. I'm sure he's probably immortal too, and he's he's losing his um, ability to identify with humanity and his ability to relate with humanity, um, and obviously there's a lot of signs of that with his relationship with her. Um, and she's the only connection he has yeah, to humanity, he and says. she's and she's becoming unfulfilled, and it's not working for her because at the she's realizing that he he he, he can't be in a relationship with a with a human being. It gets to that point, and. Um, I think that 
he wants to do what right by people, but he can't be on Earth. He can't stay on Earth much longer. Yeah, I mean, because he's he was human, but he's now he left our realm. He left our dimension. You could say what we perceive. Uh, he's got nigh omnipotence, uh, which basically means that he's nearly limitless power. There, he's not fully a god like like we religions believe in gods. He's pretty close. The only th- um, he says the only thing he can't change is. Um, um, human behavior. Yeah. So yeah. he's he's not fully a guy. He's pretty close though, but he does have supreme power. He has a lot of interesting powers like flight, telekinesis, size alteration, disintegration. Uh, he can teleport himself or others with him or others somewhere else. Uh, precognition. So he kind of perceives time and not linear like human beings. He he perceives uh, he perceives past, present, and future. Kind of like uh the, the heptapods yeah, in, yeah, in arrival. arrival. Um, Biofission, which means he can divide himself into different parts. Um, intangibility, things can go through him if, if he wants. Cosmic awareness, and he can construct things out of energy like he does on Mars when he builds a giant palace with uh, Silk Spectre on Mars. And so, like you said, he's not a, he's not a human anymore. So why, why should he play by their rules? And it's only because of Lori that for the time being... He's basically grounded in our reality because it is a life he once knew and he wants to somewhat be a part of because of Laurie. But what's stopping him from going? It's just Laurie. That's it. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our special coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters online today. They have framing, backlighting, every size, every movie you can think of, high-quality printing. They got it. If you love movies and if you love TV shows, what better way than to express that love with movie posters? You and I, James, we decorate our bedrooms and our house with posters of them everywhere. If you guys want our special coupon code offer, go to movieposters.com, type in Raiders15, and you'll get 15% off. Again, Raiders15 from movieposters.com. Yeah, and also humanity got very lucky for um, this happening to a person who was a very moral man because that kind of power, obviously he could have done whatever he wanted to the earth and to the people of earth if he wanted to, but instead he decided to um, help out the American government in their quests and in their wars and um, and aid them. Um, he cho- pretty much chose uh, USA as his his ally on earth, you could say. Um, but it gets to the point where um, Ozymandias understands that he can use Dr. Manhattan as a, a scapegoat for his ultimate plan, um, which is to s- literally save the world from nuclear holocaust and to stop the U.S. and Soviet Union from going to nuclear war. Yeah, and because Ozymandias is, is another interesting character. He's basically portrayed as like this billionaire. Um, he seems like a terrific person. And a great hero, or used to philanthropist, yeah. yeah. Um, but obviously, he becomes the villain of the film. We find out, and he's the one that kills the comedian in the beginning of the film, which which we, which they don't show. Obviously, they just show him getting thrown out the window and getting. Beat and up. the other older um, vigilantes. And there's there's a great scene where he's they show his uh, uh, an assassination attempt on him, and you get to see his in, insane athletic ability and, and catching a bullet and everything like that, which he does later in the film. And uh, Night Owl and Rorschach, once they figure out and make it to his his lair, you can say they can't even compete with him in a in two-on-one fight. He's also the smartest human being on the planet Earth, 
and he thinks that he can even he even tries to kill Doctor Manhattan too with that disintegration machine, but he doesn't realize that. Like Doctor Manhattan says, the first thing he learned was how to rematerialize. It's the first trick he learned when he became this godlike being. Yeah, because that's what happened during the experiment when it went off. So that makes total sense. Yeah. And so Ozymandias' plan is to again unite the United States and Soviet Union with a common enemy. And really, what better enemy than to frame Doctor Manhattan for what he creates is this, these explosions. And it's just one explosion. It's one giant explosion, yeah, and it kills um, um, millions of people. And Dr. Manhattan understands this and that he doesn't react in a bad way at all. He actually agrees with Ozymandias and, and that's why he has to kill Rorschach because uh, it's, it's a perfect way. For, it's like an out for him. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because humanity will hate him forever. So now he, it gives him a good cause to leave the entire galaxy. And I, I, I would say that he, he says he wants to create life. So he's going to probably create his own race of some kind of being mm-hmm. on some other planet. He could probably make a planet. Um, and terraform it uh, to to sustain life. So he'll probably cultivate an entire um, society on a planet. And w- beings of whatever he wants them to look like, which is, yeah. it's, I love that kind of ambiguous ending of what Dr. Manhattan's journey They're all going to look like, like Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> <laughs> For no reason at all. <laughs> and it's sad because, again, Rorschach makes Dr. Manhattan kill him. Mm-hmm. And then Night Owl, but bef- then Night Owl, tools on Ozymandias but there's nothing but the thing here is Ozymandias is done yeah. and he explains that there's nothing they can do because he set this plane in motion like 30 minutes before they got there mm-hmm. and so he lets him beat on his face and everything and this is where Ozymandias takes all the blows and you can just see the pain in Night Owl's face because there's nothing he can do all these people are going to die and he knows deep down there's a conflict of did he make the right decision did was what Ozymandias, Ozymandias did was that right to save humanity or was it not it's an interesting question, and I think he uh, he allows Night Owl to pummel him because it's a way of like uh, atoning for what he did in some way and taking some kind of punishment for for the action. You know what I mean? But I mean, you can't argue that he was wrong. If the entire world's gonna die in a nuclear holocaust, um, maybe maybe sacrificing a few million people would be worth it to save six billion. You know, yeah. it's an it's an interesting question and topic to to think about. And like I said, very heavy themes and very heavy topics in this film. That's not something that you're gonna see in uh, Thor. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, Thor's, you... Thor's gonna be fun, but it's not gonna be uh, an intense, dramatic, um, heavily themed movie like this. Yeah. Like, could you kill one person to save a thousand, or is it worth not losing your humanity? By not killing that one person and all humanity dies. It's a very complicated question. I think that only someone like Ozymandias could have carried this out because I feel as Ozzy thinks, I think he thinks he's better than everyone else and is separate from the rest of humanity in a way. I think he knows he is. Yeah. And so he kind of looks at people as a little inferior to him because a lot because he is such, such an exceptional being, um, even though he's, he's a person, but he's still, um, He's closer to Dr. Manhattan than he is to humans, you know what I mean, in terms of his intellect, in terms of his physical ability. So I think for sure it was an easier decision for him than it would have been for anyone else. And this movie has some fantastic scenes like the the prison sequence with Rorschach when he's uh, in prison with yeah, his mask. And he, and he attacks that guy that fights him at lunch. And, um, with 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The grease in the, the pan, the grease he throws in his face. Oh, my God, God dude. Oh, man. And then um, the, the fight when Spectre and Night Owl break him out of prison. That's a great fight sequence. And. Uh, you, Snyder has a real talent and a knack for staging and blocking fight sequences, especially big ones. And um, I, I, there's a reason why Warner Brothers tapped him to oversee pretty much the DCU. Um, ultimately, it, it didn't really work out, but you can't deny that he's an incredible um, visual storyteller and, and a fantastic director. Oh, also, one of my favorite aspects to um, this film is it makes a great reference to Stanley Kubrick and in terms of the war room in this film with Richard Nixon and the other generals in the war room, it is an identical replica of the war room from Stanley Kubrick's movie, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Atomic Bomb. And it's, it was so fantastic to see that in, in this movie because it's not just a small Easter egg. It's an entire set for multiple scenes. So it was, it was great to see that. And the way they filmed Dr. Manhattan as this blue being is Billy Crudup, the actor who played him, simultaneously provided Manhattan's placeholder in terms of like a CGI spot to film and motion capture on set. He wore a specially designed motion capture suit and face markers and was constantly filmed by at least two cameras, one for all over movement and another trained on his face to follow his expressions. This way, his onset performance as the placeholder could be used directly to create the CGI character in post-production and to provide the effect of Dr. Manhattan's eerie glow uh Kudup's suit was studded with 2500 blue lights so that he could act as an an exotic lighting instrument on set and therefore Manhattan's glow follows his movements more closely than an on-set light could so it's very practical to have this mm. light be on you so that you can actually get the real glow it's kind of like how the new Star Wars movies they actually had lightsabers that glow so you can see the the shine on the actors faces when they're up close with them yeah that's great because oftentimes like you'll see an effect done digitally where it's a, a light but it's not showing up anywhere in the scene. Like the it's old not, lightsabers. Yeah, it's not reflecting anywhere. Yeah, I like the old lightsabers, but it still happens. That's what I mean. Some people still do it, and mm -hmm. it shows like the attention to detail and the care that they took into making sure that it, it works within the realm of the scene itself and obviously helps the actors because when you see the, the light pouring on their faces or reflecting off a metallic surface, like it, it feels more realistic, you know, and it feels like... Um, Dr. Manhattan is real and he's really there. And I, I think a lot of people were mad that they uh, 
didn't have his his uh his eggplant out the whole time. The whole time? Well, I mean, I understand why they did it for when he's a giant being yeah. and he's like in Vietnam because like you don't want like a giant dong hanging like flopping around like like that would be like the size Ten of the building. Stories. But I mean, there are several shots with it out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But I think people, some fans were just a little upset there wasn't enough of it. I think. I think I think there's plenty of sausage in this movie. <laughs> plenty <laughs> surplus of sausage. <laughs> How much more do you need? Like it's not it's like it's not like Fastbender with shame where you just get one shot of it, but like <laughs> <laughs> after Dr. Manhattan's accident, he creates the perfect human form to replace his old body. To achieve the Dr. Manhattan ultra ripped muscular look, his physique was modeled on that of actor and model Greg Plitt. Let's move on to V for Vendetta, which was released in 2005, same year as Batman Begins, directed by James McTeague. Again, basically the protege of the Wachowskis on The Matrix who wrote the script and produced the film. And this is based, again, on the graphic novel by Alan Moore of the same title, illustrated this time by David Lloyd. In a future British tyranny, a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of V plots to overthrow it with the help of a young woman. And James McTeague, um, when we say he was their protege, he was the second unit director on The Matrix movies. And um, what that means is uh, most studio films, they have the first unit, which the usually the director, or in this case the Wachowskis, two of them, um, they direct most of the film, about like 90% or so. And then in order to save money and time, they hire a second unit to um, film pickup shots or scenes that aren't exactly super vital. Maybe they don't have any of the leads act actors in it. Maybe they don't have any big set pieces. And so... Um, this second crew will handle those directing duties to capture this footage that the main crew doesn't really have the budget or time for. And so this actually happens with most big budget movies. There's usually um, two teams working. Only filmmakers like Chris Nolan um, for big budget will or Tarantino will film all of their scenes on their own. They don't hire second units, but it's a very common thing. So James McTeague had a lot of experience and um, I, I would say about like maybe 5% of the Matrix movies are is footage that he filmed. Yeah, and there are other connections to the Matrix trilogy, of course, with uh, Hugo Weaving playing the, the main character of V, but it was actually originally cast by as James Purefoy as V, and he filmed for six weeks on set. And what happened is uh, over creative differences, he was cut from the project and they recast as Hugo Weaving. And they reshot any of the scenes that James Purefoy did that required dialogue and then they also, but they also kept some of the scenes that James Purefoy is in where there's no dialogues being spoken. So there's some shots where it's actually James Purefoy um, under the mask. But then other times there are stunt direct stunt actors. And this is similar to how we've mentioned before that Pedro Pascal isn't always under the Mandalorian mask. And sometimes it's standing in stunt actors Latif Crowder and Brendan Wayne. But obviously it doesn't take anything from the performance. And also another connection to the Matrix is. Um, the directors of the John Wick films and Keanu Reeves' stunt double on The Matrix, Chad Sahelski, also does a lot of stunt work as V in this film, as well as other actors, stunt actors as well. But one of the most important scenes that Sahelski did was the scene where V emerges from the explosion in fire of that building at Lark Hill. Stahelski literally walked through fire wearing just a special fire-resistant gel and a G-string. His body temperature had to be lowered before the scene was shot. And luckily, it was three degrees below zero the night of the shoot. And so 15 minutes before 
Each take, he would put on ice-cold, flame-resistant clothing. And once he took them off, he'd be covered with a fire-resistant gel, which had been icing all day. So he actually is standing in that fire, which is insane. That's crazy. I thought they just did that shot with CGI. I think they put CGI on top of it. Yeah, I guess that's insane. That guy, that man's an animal. And now he's the director of all the John Wick movies, which is so cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and V is a great performance by Hugo Weaving because, yes, um, Pure Foy did about maybe like a quarter of the film himself, but um, Hugo Weaving shows how great of a physical actor he is because it's not like it's Bane because you can still see Bane's eyes. You know what I mean? So Tom Hardy still has his eyes to work with, but with V, all you have to work with is how you move. And... Um, he still manages to express so much and emote so much and and show so much character and personality because V is very he's very playful and um, he's very animated and he is a high intellect and he like he enjoys music and he enjoys dance. Um, he's he's such a, a interesting character and um, Hugo Weaving showed himself to be a, a true genius physical performer as well as I mean this has got to be the best. Um, voiceover acting ever in terms of like just the full mostly the entire performance is adr they they recorded all the dialogue on in a studio because they try to put microphones inside the mask um within the nose and then within his hairline but both microphones ended up picking up just horrible audio so um hugo weaving adr the whole thing and he is able to act so well through a microphone in a studio. It was, it was, you couldn't even tell it wasn't on set. Yeah, it's so ironic because the the face that he has, the mask of Guy Fox, is always the same smiling, laughing expression. And so Hugo Weaving has so much control over his voice. And obviously, he's a stage actor as well. So yeah. he, he knows how to control that part of his body. And it's just impressive. Like like you said, he's a great physical actor. And V likes to, he's very expressive with his body language, but also. I don't think I've ever heard an act, a vocal performance where you're expressing so much with your voice and you can basically, in your head, you see the, the facial expressions of V in yeah. a way through the voice the of Hugo Weaving. You which can is, see the personality. It's so impressive. And it, I, this film is just, it has so many incredible ideas and themes and a lot of a lot of them are so relevant to what's happening right now in the world. And obviously... Um, the COVID situation has been a lot, has gotten a lot bad, better over the last year, especially with the vaccines being rolled out. But um, there's a time last year in like April, May, June, where things were just very scary, and um, the world, the entire world, was in lockdown, and um, you, you know the the society changed, and um, the events of this film they aren't so different because when the when the story t- state um, begins. Uh, Britain is now under the rule of a fascist state and a tyrannical chancellor played by um John Hurt played by John Hurt fantastically yeah, by it's the called way Norse fire the guy's the guy's entire acting job is in front of a screen I don't know how he's able to do it so well he ironically plays the same kind of character in uh George Orwell's uh, film yeah, 1984. 1984 yeah exactly right and this fascist um dictatorship had taken over the country because of of viral outbreak that had um taken over the world um two decades earlier and so the viral outbreak um allowed a fascist um government to take over the country um because in a lot of ways in or uh, a country like this survived because the total control that the government took over its people um and which is obviously a bad thing but once the government had this 
iron grip on its people and its citizens, it never let go. And now the people of England live under the harsh rule of this chancellor and this government. And, you know, it's from the events of 2020. When I saw this movie when I was a kid and many times after that, I was always like, oh, this is a little like, oh, this is a cool concept, but like it's not, that would never happen. But with the events of 2020, you're like, now you look at this movie and you're like, you know, I, I could totally see that being a possible outcome to something like this because a lot of places became very close to that and people were discussing things like this happening in real time. And so uh, I think this movie became so relevant this year. Yeah, and not just the international viral pandemic. I mean, we're talking about a, a year where we saw global protests used to combat justice, um, injustice, as well as the current shape of big tech that we're seeing in social media companies and their effect on information that's released and shown as well as speech. And V for Vendetta follows this Norse fire political party that's run by, that's controlled by Adam Sutler, who is very similar to, to Adolf Hitler. If you, they even look alike, except for Sutler has a goatee and Hitler has the Hitler mustache. So, I mean, they, they seem very similar in terms of characters. I'm sure they based it off of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the way he speaks. Yeah. But again, just to talk about how you were, you were talking about what happened, what this totalitarian government did to seize power. And you're, it's this kind of back and forth that you'll see sometimes with these dictatorships where it's like freedom versus security. And, and can you have both and uh, freedom without security? Is it, is it worthless, but is it also to live without freedom to enjoy it, even though you're secure? And so the totalitarian governments, especially in this film, they take that, that role of we'll keep you safe, but also you can't have culture really. You can't have this information. We're going to control everything. Like the scene, the first scene we see Sutler is he's on the screen with his his lieutenants and they're talking about culture, things like books and music and like put that on the blacklist, like a t- certain type of song. So now mm-hmm. you can't have this kind of art. You can't have this kind of music. It's kind of like, it's almost like they're canceling it in a way. Yeah. And they're also monitoring the citizens and listening into their phone calls and, ev- and, and hacking into everyone. And so they're constantly monitoring the population as well. And um, this allowing freedom of speech and freedom of expression in a lot of ways. And they also have a curfew. Yeah. And this is where uh, Evie runs into V. Well, she's saved by by V because she's going out past curfew. And the finger men, uh, they catch her and they're about to you know do something horrible to her. Uh, but V saves the day. And this is basically the start of the of the, the inciting action, you could say. Yeah. The scene where yeah. um, uh, V bl- blows up the not he blows up that building, the old yeah, building. The old building. Yeah. yeah. And, it was the old parliament. Yeah. So he blows up with fireworks with the with the show. And so mm-hmm. that's what starts off this this entire year of V leading up to the fifth of November, the next one coming up. And this movie it had a, a very mixed critical response from critics. And this is the reason why, because a lot of people, they didn't understand what this movie was about because a lot of people, when they saw this movie, they thought it was encouraging um, terrorism yeah, yeah. and they thought it was encouraging rebellion. But what this movie is about is um, rebelling against fascism and uh, something like a totalitarian government or a dictatorship. And it's about grabbing a hold of your freedoms again because the people in this country, they don't have any freedoms. And this chancellor is a horrible fascist ruler. And so the movie, it's not glorifying terrorism. Instead, it's it's showing that um, governments like this, they can be stopped if the people deem it possible and believe that they can overthrow a government like this. 
because go- th- these kinds of governments have have taken place many times in history. Some governments around the world are very much like this, and so it's 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 still possible it can happen, but it's still possible it's people can rise up and um, fight for their freedoms because that's what they deserve. Yeah, and there's so much verbiage and amazing words used by by V in this film, and I think the the reason why he's so eloquent and uses such a high vocabulary is because he's combating the suppression of, of freedom of speech in this dictatorship in this totalitarian country. Um, and, like, there's some great lines. Obviously, people should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people, and ideas are bulletproof. And that's basically what V's trying to do is he's trying to open up the eyes of the citizens of, of the United Kingdom and England to show them what's happening. And that's that's why the first inciting action with that first explosion, that just sets off. And then the other situations are where he takes over the newsroom and he, he broadcasts to the entire country on TV. And then he's uh, s- sending little snippets of inf- information. There's there's rumors flying out about him of all these ig- situations he's involved in, like with the, with the Pope or is it the bishop? Bishop, yeah. The bishop that uh, he takes out. And so he's creating this, this con- these conversations between these citizens that they were never having because... The way this totalitarian government takes over is with force and security and also taking away culture, taking away art. That's why V has this amazing layer full of illegal art, illegal music, illegal literature. Also like how Stephen Fry's character, um, who, who he plays uh, Dietrich, um, a closeted gay talk show host, which homosexuality is illegal in this totalitarian world. Um, and this character is fantastic because... Of all the media, which all are f- part of the political party, the Horsefire part, the Norsefire party, he's the only one that takes the chance to to make a joke about the Adam Sutler and to to say something against it. And of course, he dies for it. And so, what what V is trying to do is to open everybody's eyes and to say that the people of the nation have the power, not the government. And it's time to wake up. And it's time for a revolution. And that's what Evie's character is for. Evie is us. And Evie represents the society and the population in England because she starts out as a normal Englander um, who follows the rules and is clearly terrified of her of her government because when she's out past curfew, she knows she's in possible danger of the authorities. And and uh, Natalie Portman is absolutely fantastic in this movie, like she always is in every role. She's an unbelievable actor, and she really was brave in her decision to um, really allow herself to completely be stripped down in this movie. And the basic biggest example is um, the famous scene where she gets her head shaved, um, which obviously we've talked about is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a serious thing for an actress to do because it can affect roles and um, it can affect how you look for a long time. And so that could affect casting for other roles. So even with wigs and the wigs with, are yeah. great, but like it still affects the yeah. image. Yeah, exactly. And so, but she committed full head right into this scene and they actually filmed this for real in one take. And what they did was they set up three cameras in three different angles and then rolled for like 15 minutes while the barber shaved her head. And it wasn't Hugo Weaving who shaved her head. It was a, a professional barber who was dressed as V with V's gloves. And then he shaved her head for the, the entire scene. And Natalie Portman's performance in this in transformation in this is unbelievable and it is a metaphor towards the transformation of the entire country in a lot of ways because she ends up discovering and gaining her own freedom from herself 
and accepting herself for the first time in her life. Yeah, she goes through probably one of the most dramatic character transformations you'll ever see in a movie um, when she's imprisoned by, we eventually find out V's the one who kidnapped her, not the Fingerman, not the not the Norse Fire Party, uh, not the government. And this is the only way that she's able to be stripped of that fear of her government and through the process of, of the torture and, and also through reading those letters of Valerie, which was a real person who was also imprisoned in one of those um, concentration camps because she was a lesbian in this totalitarian regime. That's what kept her going through this process, and that's what helped her get past the fear of death and the fear of, of being under control. And the reason why V does this is because he wants to eliminate the fear within Evie because the fear is how the government controls the people. And so he does the same thing to the entire population over this year where he is showing the people that it's possible to 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 change things. And by the end of the film, when the entire city is overrun by citizens wearing Guy Fox masks, what has happened is they have um, eliminated their fear of the government and they're ready to overthrow it. And so fear... The elimination of fear, I think, is one of the major themes of this film. Yeah, and that was the final act, was sending all the citizens that Guy Fox mask to help them not be afraid anymore. And now they can stand together under the anonymity of these masks. And why why a Guy Fox mask? Why does he wear the guise of Guy Fox, who was, he was famous for his involvement in the gunpowder plot of 1605, which was placed in charge of, which he was placed in charge of executing Due to his military and explosive experience, uh, the plot, which was masterminded by Robert Catesby, was a failed attempt by a group of provincial English Roman Catholic conspirators to kill King James I and most of the Protestant aristocracy in one swoop uh, by blowing up the houses of parliament uh, during its state opening. But again, but I think people may not know, this wasn't like a, a form of revolution. This was basically they wanted a shift in the power, so they kind of just wanted their people in charge rather yeah. than like a revolution Changing like, like the, V for Vendetta. Yeah. They weren't trying to change the country. But still, it represented the ideas that um, revolution can be built from. And the guy Fox mask became like an iconic symbol for, in culture for a while. And even the that, and that um, what do you call it, the organization Anonymous, mm-hmm. those hackers, they were inspired by this movie to use the guy Fox mask as their uh, logo, if you would call it a logo. Were they before this movie or after? No, after. after? Yeah, oh. this movie inspired it. So Anonymous got their look from V for Vendetta. And I, I really, the character V, again, it's it's so fantastic and phenomenal. When we, we learn of his origin story in this this Lark Hill, which uh, Inspector Finch, he's on this he's on this side investigation. He's, he's, of course, one of the other main characters besides V and Evie. And he's, he's, tr- he's a version of the audience, you could say, where um, he's obviously obedient to his government. And he's a good cop. He seems like a good man at heart. And he's also curious because he's, uh, things aren't adding up or he's discovering things that maybe he shouldn't have seen. And then Adam Sutler says to, I think he says not to use, look at facts or something like that when he's when he's uncovering these clues. He says like to not think too much about it. Um, so he doesn't want him to analyze what's happening, what he finds and discovers. And he's on to this investigation of Lark Hill, which we find out was basically a concentration camp of people who were minorities, who were Jewish, who were uh, homosexual, lesbian, so basically... Outspoken. What, yeah, what this totalitarian regime classified as basically undesirables. But and, it wasn't a totalitarian. It was this group, this faction within the government headed by Sutler. And he was uh, 
using this camp as a way to experiment on people at Lark Hill. Well, it's a concentration camp and a place to experiment. Yeah, too, yeah exactly. Because that's when the scientist, the, the yeah. woman scientist, she's the one that does the experiments. Yeah, and the the result of these experiments was the viral outbreak, which they allowed to escape because they knew that if a viral outbreak escaped Lark Hill and killed enough people, then Sutler and his cronies could gain control of the country and seize power. And that's exactly what uh, Fincher, Finch is uh, uncovering. But what they didn't realize is that in creating this almost unstoppable power of their regime they created the biggest enemy they could ever have with v because he's the only person that survived the experimentation and in turn it turned him into basically a superhuman person and v and evie have a lot in common in terms of their character development and transformation there's a duality between them because obviously they're they both have the names evie and v and then at the start of this movie they're both preparing for their evenings in the mirror and they both undergo disfigurement in this film. V was obviously burned and horribly scarred. And Evie is shaved. Uh, Evie's head is shaved off. And then V, he was created through fire when he was burned up in that in the lab. And signifying destruction and vengeance. And in contrast, Evie was born through water when she goes up to the rooftop to embrace her new being. And that signifies rebirth and forgiveness. And then the movie ends with V's death, uh, symbolizing the end of the suffering and vengeance. And then that leaves room for Evie to forgive and um, the country to be reborn. The movie also has similarities to V's favorite film, The Count of Monte Crisco, as well. Cristo. Cristo, as well. <laughs> Crisco. They say Crisco. And this movie has some great action, some great violence, because it's, it's rated R for a reason. It's a hard R. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of blood in this movie. The final act is intense. Yeah. When V's attacking people and with his knives, and they, they really they did not um, hold anything back in terms of, like, when he's cutting arteries, there's blood pouring out of those arteries. You know what I mean? It's, it was, it's a lot of fun to see rated R. Like, we get it in Logan and Deadpool, and it's something we enjoy. We enjoy violence, and we, sure, we, we enjoy graphic um, nature. And uh, this movie, that, that knife scene... Especially is so much fun that knife scene with Creedy's men um, near the end of the film, and the way they filmed it, it, it was not super slow mo. It looks like it's super slow mo, but it's not. What they did was all the SWAT members, and while they were filming, the SWAT team actors were moving in slow motion, and then the actor playing V in that moment was going normal speed, and they were also filming just at sixty frames per second, which slowed those actors down even more once it was filmed and that's why it looks so so great to see the difference in speed between v and the swat team that's really clever and what i love about this film is yes the violence great and it's it's graphic and it's bold but they don't do it without reason like you'll see a lot of action movies that they just have violence just to have violence but he only uses the violence when he needs to really and that's an important scene too because that's when he finishes the lieutenants off, and that's where uh, Adam Sutler dies too in that scene too, and that's his, basically his final fight because he be, suffers four, fatal wounds in this fight, and so he knows he's gonna die, but he manages to basically end the final pieces of this Norse fire government. Speaking of pieces, that gigantic domino set—it um, <laughs> was made with the dominoes were made with twenty-two thousand dominoes, and it took four professional domino assemblers over 200 hours to set it up and they only had one take to do it that's absolutely insane imagine if they messed up 
How do you, do you have like a shockproof floor? Like what happens if know. someone drops a glass? I don't know. Like how is there, there must be something under the dominoes to hold them in some way, right? Well, I mean, they're professional domino placers. That's obviously a very specific job. So they must yeah. be very good at what they do. How do you get a professional at that? I don't know. You, you do stuff like that. Yeah. But that's, I love that scene when he finally pushes it at the end before he goes out on his final mission. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. It's a metaphor, man. In the first uh, theatrical trailer of this movie, uh, they used a lot of music from Batman Begins, which is you know a DC property under Christopher Nolan's film, and they also used some music from The Dark Knight, which is actually pretty cool. So next time you you go check it out, watch the trailer, you'll you'll recognize music from the Batman movies. Oh no way! In the end, where the entire city has um, overtaken Parliament and they take off their Guy Fox masks, there's a moment where you can see Hugo weaving in the crowd taking off a Guy Fox mask and revealing himself. Great little cameo. The brilliance to V's plan is that uh, he's not the one who who sets the bomb off. He leaves that responsibility to Evie because of what she represents, and Evie represents the people. And he gives her the choice because it's the people's choice to make this decision. They're, they decide their own fates, and they're... They're the ones who have to decide their future because V, we already know where V stands. And so he's leaving it up to the people to make the decision at the end. And also Finch, he discovers Evie uh, at the train station and she's putting the rose on the final rose on uh, V's dead body. And Finch at this point, you know, again, like I said, he's kind of like the surrogate for the audience, whereas Evie's the population. And now he's beginning to believe and he's agrees with this decision and he decides not to stop it. He decides to let Evie go through with the plan and blow up Parliament, which is insane probably to him five hours before that. But at this point, his character's gone through a lot of uh, discovery and changes, and now he agrees with the decision to do it. Yeah, it's a great ending. And um, it's hi- the entire film is highlighted by uh, the score by Dario Marianelli. Fantastic music. He did an fin- amazing job with this. Um, and one of my favorite songs is the song called Evie Reborn, which is the uh, emotional transformation of Natalie Portman's character in the rain. And it's one of the most beautiful things that I like to listen to. Uh, if you haven't heard the score, check it out. It's fantastic. Yeah, and again, this film is about waking up and Wake trying up. to try, trying to open your eyes to the way all governments run their countries and how all governments control their, their populations and you know, you might find things you, you don't agree with or understand, but it's important to keep learning and keep diving into these topics, even if it, it's something that provokes you or makes you uncomfortable. Uh, I think it's important to be educated on things that control your life. And I think it's also important to always question your government in certain ways and to always make... we. It's important for the people to keep the government um, under control in a way and from taking and seizing too much power. And keeping them in check. And just like V says, people should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. And that's about as political as we've ever been on our show. <laughs> I love this movie. It's it's so I, I've seen it uh, more than a dozen times. And I think it's an excellent, underrated cult classic. Yeah, movie. actually, I haven't seen it in a couple of years. And I want to watch it ASAP now after we talk about watch it. You should watch it, man. Yeah, man. It's, I think it's so on, good. It's on Netflix, it's I think. It's so good. So thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast, Breaking Down Watchmen. And V for Vendetta. Obviously, these movies are very dense. We could do three hours on it. Maybe some other time we'll touch on them. But thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify. 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.